Welcome to Bollywood is for Lovers, part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I'm Aaron Fraser. And I'm Matt Bose. In this episode, we're celebrating our favorite movie season, November, with two neo-noirs that focus on one of our favorite archetypes, the femme fatale. First up, Vidya Balan seduces Narizuddin Shah and Arshad Warsi in Abhishek Chobe's Ishkia from 2010. Then Priyanka Chopra channels her inner bluebeard in Vishal Bardwaj's Satkun Maaf from 2011. Welcome back, lovers. Eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listeners uh, will have noticed that at the end of our last episode, we did not say what this episode was going to be about. We left it a cliffhanger. We did. Um, that was partly because uh, we weren't entirely sure what we were doing. Uh, we knew we wanted to do something about Noir Have we ever been really sure what we're doing? I, I mean, usually we are. Usually we have things planned out. And yeah. to be fair, we did have things planned out. We, we knew that we wanted to do uh, return to the concept of November and talk about Noir in Bollywood. But... Uh, things were up in the air because I wasn't sure if we'd be able to get a copy of the 1969 film Itafak uh, in time for this episode. Because it's just been remade featuring Akshay Khanna. And yes. uh, we also couldn't find time to get up to the theater to see that one either. So that one just kind of fell apart. Yeah. So unfortunately, it hasn't shown up yet. It's in the mail, but it's not here yet, so we weren't able to talk about Itifak, which is great, because uh, we never said what we were going to talk about, and now we have a completely different episode that we have thrown together in a day. <laughs> How do you like that, listeners? This is Thinking on Your Feet podcast style. Um, but before we get to the main episode, I want to tell you all that I was just on the phone just five minutes ago with my mother, and she was finishing up watching Dungal. And she loved it. Oh, good. Yes. I was waiting. I, I've been on the edge of a seat for months now, just waiting to see what your mother thought of that one. Yeah, yeah. I called her, and she was like, you're interrupting me. I'm almost done Dangal. And I was like, oh, are you, are you enjoying it? And she's like, this movie's wonderful. Go away. See? That's <laughs> so, about right. Yeah. So she she's enjoyed that one as well. So I think, you know, like, Airlift is the outlier. That's the only movie she didn't really like yet. Airlift is kind of weird. Maybe she just doesn't like uh, Akshay Kumar yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it took me a while to like Akshay Kumar. Yeah. You kind of got to ease into it. Yeah. I'm having lunch with her tomorrow, so maybe I'll find out more about uh, what she liked about Dunkel. More on this story as it develops, <laughs> listeners. Uh, but moving on to our topic of the hour, Noir Vemper. Uh, we did an episode last year with Neil Barnholden on November. One of our most popular ever, actually. Yes. We uh, talked about some uh, Dev Anand films taking place in uh, in Bombay. Uh, mm -hmm. It was CID and Bazi, if I remember right. And yeah, uh, yeah that was a, that was a fun look at uh, uh, what you would maybe call classic noir. That is still one of my favorite episodes. It was so great to have Neil on. Unfortunately, he's too busy with other things in his life to come talk to us this this month. Yeah, I think we did a good job on that episode, but uh, we'll see what we can do on our own here. Yes. Um, we go a bit more into detail on what film noir is in that episode, so if you uh, don't know... Uh, you can go and listen to that. But a quick kind of primer is that it was a kind of an, a filmmaking mode. An, yeah, it was an unconscious film movement in the mostly the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. um, in uh, Hollywood crime films. And so kind of your classics are Double Indemnity and The Maltese Falcon. Big Sleep, uh, Touch of Evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Big Heat. 
the American filmmakers uh, that were making these movies at the time didn't kind of see this as an overarching kind of aesthetic or movement, but some French critics uh, later on when they have the opportunity to see the films, uh, kind of after World War II, when um, they were able to see a lot more Halloween movies again in Paris, uh, kind of noticed the trend and coined the term film noir. Yeah, it means dark movies, mm-hmm. black movies, and um, they're characterized, at least visually, by uh, low-key lighting, mm-hmm. lots of shadows, lots of chiaroscuro, and... Nihilistic crime stories. Nihilistic <laughs> crime stories is generally the narrative, but <clears throat> these were mostly B-films, yeah. cheapies, and a lot of the um, lighting and stuff was just to hide that they were just shooting on a crappy set. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's kind of a happy accident. But uh, today we're looking at two neo-noir films, which is what happens starting in about the 70s or so when filmmakers who've learned all about the original noir, which again were a happy accident, and decide we want to remake this. Yeah. And noir continues to be a mode um, up until today. I mean, we just had a sequel to Blade Runner 2049, which is kind of one of your classic sci-fi noirs. Neo-noirs. Yes. I mean, I guess guess the way you would qualify a neo-noir is that it is self-consciously trying to do this, whereas the original noirs were, again, a happy accident. So there's a bit more of a theoretical underpinning behind Mm neo-noir. And neo-noir kind of um, can... Uh, work across genres. So you Mm -hmm. can have kind of a Western neo-noir and a sci-fi neo-noir. They aren't strictly uh, kind of contemporary crime films. Yeah, some of the big ones you've heard of are like Body Heat, Mm -hmm. itself a remake of Double Indemnity, Mm -hmm. or uh, Chinatown. Memento. Memento. um, Yeah, and Blade Runner. Blade Blade Runner Runner is one of the, the coolest and best ones. Yeah. Now, Noirvember is kind of a... It's a hashtag. It's a Twitter game. Yeah. It was created by Old Films Flickr, a.k.a. Maria Gates, uh, who is... Um, she works for um, TCM and Filmstruck, and she's she's wonderful. Highly encourage everyone to follow her on Twitter, because um, she's always talking about old movies. Be warned, though. You're going to get a ton of tweets <laughs> Right now, because Noirvember is in full swing. And a lot of people will pick a different noir film to watch every single day mm-hmm. this month. Exactly. We don't really have the time for that. <laughs> no. But uh, we did pick two um, fairly recent ones to yeah. take a look at this time. Yeah. And and Gates is also great because she also does um, experiments where she watches um, only films uh, directed by women for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, she's Yeah, she's wonderful. Highly encourage you to follow her because she's always kind of coming up with, um, with interesting kind of cinephile challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and as cinephiles, I would say, like, noir is one of our favorite modes. Yep. You know, I mean, I just, I love, I love a good film noir. I love a good neo-noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our all-time favorite movies is Brick, uh, which is an excellent neo-noir by Ryan Johnson, who's going to be well-known <laughs> right away here for directing the new Star Wars film. And they're giving him a whole trilogy to do. Yeah. So he's yeah. going to be... Very rich and can hopefully make all kinds of movies that he wants to do once he's done with all yeah. this Star Wars business. But we're OG, we're OG Ryan Johnson fans. From, oh yeah, from I saw Brick days. in theater. Yeah. Did you see it in theater? No. Uh, the first time I saw Brick was our first date almost eleven years ago. <laughs> right. 
I went with my friend Sam, and we saw it at the theater downtown here in Edmonton. I yeah. thought, that looks cool. I think I might have saw the trailer. Yeah. And just, yeah, went for it. And from there on, I've enjoyed every Ryan Johnson film. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he does, it, the the other one, the Brothers, uh, Brothers Bloom. Yeah. Kind of also in that mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, keep in mind, so with neo-noir self-conscious, noir mm-hmm. unconscious. We call it a mode because it is hard to pin down. There's a yeah. visual style. There's certain character tropes that come up all the time. Uh, it plays using a lot of hard-boiled fiction stories, which are not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But that's your Raymond Chandler's, your Dashiell Hammett's. Um, whereas neo-noir, mixing those up and working from that framework. Mm-hmm. Now, in Bollywood, our kind of major neo-noir players are Ram Gopavarma, mm-hmm. uh, who's made a lot of gangster pictures um, that we have yet to see, so still haven't seen Satya. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vishal Bardwaj, who uh, produced one of these films and directed the other one. He is very much working in kind of this this mode both kind of aesthetically and narratively and we recently finally caught up with his Mac Bull which is very clearly like a Bollywood noir take on Macbeth yeah even more so than Omkara and and Hader were and uh, thanks to Piyush Patel yeah. for lending us a legal copy of Mac Bull one of our holy grails that we've been trying to find mm-hmm. um, yeah Bardwaj his films definitely seemed informed by other films. Mm -hmm. Both of these, um, there's a little bit of spot the reference as a fun little game. And I know this is going to bother me. In Ishkia, they use songs from a 50s or (laughs) 60s film. I've heard the song, might have seen the movie, don't know exactly what it was, and it will bother me. I'm going to look at my whole phone's worth of songs tomorrow and see if I can figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we're talking about the femme fatale, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of our favorite archetypes, uh, I think, in all of cinema, um, but especially in noir. And I think that's partly because women don't get a lot to do in noir. And the femme fatale is kind of really the only juicy role for women. But in it's an extremely juicy role. Exactly. It's and extremely juicy. Part of what made the original noir was um, American servicemen coming back from the war mm-hmm. and being uncomfortable with the fact that women worked in factories, yes. made their own money, went out on the town by themselves and you know kind of took it as an affront to their masculinity that this happened. So the femme fatale can be read as a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's these no good dames out there that'll screw up your life. But they do date back to the 20s and 30s oh, yeah. from that hard-boiled uh, fiction, too. So it's complicated. As, like, trying to pin down the story of a noir film, it's unclear as to where these things start and where they end. And it's simultaneously kind of sexist and empowering. It's mm-hmm. both kind of misogynist and liberating. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love the femme fatale so much. Your classic femme fatale kind of portrays herself as a victim. A leggy dame who walks into a <laughs> yeah, she, uh, gumshoe's office. She might wear an anklet. That's mm-hmm. spectacularly seen in Double Indemnity. Exactly. Uh, and she kind of, you know, 
convinces our unluckily, unlucky protagonist or protagonists to feel sorry for her and kind of fall for her. And then she manipulates them to get what she wants. And then she double crosses them. <laughs> and usually ends up in a bad way herself. Yeah. No one gets out of these things clean. Exactly. And so that's where you see kind of this element of, um, you know, clearly th- this fear of women um, and kind of this anger towards women. Yeah. So you have this kind of this fear of female agency, but also you have this this female agency and, you know... <sighs> For women who are sick of always being shown kind of um, as good, you know, you have this kind of, you know, Madonna and whore complex. The femme fatale kind of breaks through that in a way because she's not she's not a Madonna or a whore. It's transgressive. Exactly. Exactly. She's, you know, at this, in the 40s and 50s, she was one of the more liberated kind of uh, women that you would see on screen. But also a cautionary tale. Yes. Um... The image is extremely powerful, and and that's why it has persisted, and I think why um, she shows up in so many modern neo-noirs, and why we have two films here that I think take a very... have very interesting takes on the femme fatale, and I would say much more sympathetic portrayals than you would get in kind of your classic period. Definitely, yeah. Especially Sakuma. Yes. Uh, so our first film is Ishkia from 2010, directed by Abhishek uh, Chobi. He is probably best known at this point uh, for Utapunja. Great movie. A film that we absolutely adore. Uh, this was his first film, and what a debut. Mm-hmm. It was produced by Vishal Bhardwaj. It's written by Gulzar. Well, the, the songs were written by Gulzar, weren't no, they? No, he wrote the script. Oh, wow. Yeah. It stars Nazi Rudin Shah, Vidya Balan, Arshad Warsi, and Adil Hussain. It won three Filmfare Awards, including the Critics Award for Best Actress, and was nominated for four more, and it won four National Film Awards. It was recognized a lot for its music, which Bardwa did. Which is kind of weird, I think. Yeah? I thought the music was okay. Okay. But... There was other things about the movie I liked a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film is about two kind of low-level crooks played by Shaw and Warsi. Uh, they are an uncle and a nephew, so kind of like uh, LMFAO. Just, <laughs> you know, I thought of that while we were watching the movie, and I was going to bring that up, but yeah, just yeah. like, just like uh, you know, uh, what do you call them, an EDM group, I guess, <laughs> LMFAO. Uh Party Rocker uh, Anthem is the only song I know by them. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got a bit of a Sholay feel, too. Like, these two two guys out on their own. They're introduced in a very weird scene where... It's great. It's great. It's fun. They're they're drunk in their underwear, dancing around in kind of a picturesque uh, landscape. And they've hired a band, I guess, to follow (laughs) them around. No one really explains anything about this. And then uh, they... uh, Another Muslim gangster has caught up to them. Yeah. They ripped him off for some money, and he's been hunting them for for days now. Yeah. So they kind of have to go into hiding because this gangster is after them, and they uh, end up at Vidya Balan's place. In Uttar Pradesh. Yes. She has recently been widowed. Her husband, played by Hussein, uh, was kind of like... He ran a kidnapping racket. Yeah. Um, It was also potentially a gun smuggler. He uh, died 
uh, in a gas leak explosion. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, so she takes them in um, and slowly starts to seduce them. She puts the screws to them. And then through her seduction kind of starts to pit them against one another and then convinces them that the three of them should kidnap kind of a low low level uh, local entrepreneur so that they can uh, essentially get the ransom. Yeah. But and uh, they have kind of lost the money that the yeah. gangster was following them exactly. for. Exactly. But would you believe she has an ulterior motive and she's obviously just using them. This is this is yeah. about femme fatales. So she's using them. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a striking performance from Vidya Bhalan. I mean, Vidya Bhalan is always great. One of my favorite actresses currently working in Bollywood. And this this is such a fun role because she gets to be sexy. And, I, I, and you know, Vidya Bhalan is not... Your classic ingenue. She's a little bit older. She's a little bit curvier, and she just she always has this mature sex appeal about her that I really appreciate. So a Joan Holloway effect. Exactly. Yeah. She she gets to be sexy. She gets to be vulnerable. She gets to be powerful. Ooh. This is. I mean, this is this is such a good role. I I really 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 enjoyed this film. I kind of. At times, even couldn't figure out where the plot was going, which I think is um, to the film's credit because it's a pretty kind of basic story when it, when you get down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I thought it was a little slow at the beginning, but the second half really kicked it in the high gear. Mm-hmm. I think it's weird that the songs were especially beloved by people because it's just a really well done filmic experience as well. And I didn't think that the songs were spectacular anyway. Well, there's a great song sequence where Shaw is kind of falling in love with Balan and he kind of sees her everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, the songs don't take center stage here. That's that's totally true. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you get this fun um, three-way... I guess you call it a love triangle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love triangle between Balan, uh, Nazirudin Shah, and uh, Arshad Wasi. And um, Warsi, I don't think I've seen him in a movie before, but he's got a great look in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's kind of got like a coal-eyed, uh, you know, black around the eyelids look, and he kind of looks like a wild man. Yeah. He's got his shirt open to his belly button, basically. And then you have Shaw, who's more of a sophisticated crook. Mm-hmm. And they have a fun, um, they have fun interplay between them. I, I mean, I think they Maybe both, just old. Yeah, he's just... I mean, he's a little bit wiser, sure, but they both kind of seem so much like fuck-ups. Yeah. Like, and, they're, and that's this what could, makes them easy to manipulate. Yeah, this could be a Coen Brothers movie, honestly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It could be um, these guys who think that they're these hotshot crooks exactly. who are able to pull a scam, but really they're flying by the skin of their teeth and are being manipulated by every single person they come across. And they're just... They're just cogs in a larger machine that really has nothing to do with them and that they have no control over them, which is very noir. Like, they... I wouldn't say aesthetically or stylistically this film is very noir. Although the uh, tag for Vishal Bardwaj's oh, yeah. uh, uh, production company at the beginning is very noir. It's very yeah. chiaroscuro. There's a someone in a uh, trench coat and, like, a fedora. And we were looking for that in Sakuma, but it doesn't happen. The next year, so I... Yeah, he has a different logo yeah, treatment. Yeah, that was weird. 
Yeah, and that's something I noticed with a lot of um, Bollywood studios is you know they're they're changing their logos all the time, and you know sometimes when you got a really good one, you should stick with it. Fuse. Yeah, Fanta. I mean, they haven't changed that way. Yeah, that's a good one. And the Bonsali Swan. Yeah. And the YRF <laughs> Jagged thing. <laughs> if, if you watch Bollywood films, you develop a certain kind of appreciation and the Dharma, relationship with logos. <laughs> the Dharma. Oh. Yeah, with logo treatments. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't say aesthetically um, this is very noir. And it's interesting because noir is also often associated with... Um, urban environments, and this is very feels very rural. Yeah, but there were some classic noirs mm-hmm. that took place out in the uh, in the sticks, uh, like the Jim Thompson books, yeah. and I would say the uh, James M. Cain stuff, which yeah. was made into films as well. Postman was Rings Twice, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know, growing up in the country, like, you think things get dark out in the oh, city yeah. at nighttime. When you live in the country, you look out your window, it's pitch black nothingness. Yeah. So, arguably, the country is more noir than yeah. the city. Which, you know, the, the film noir is kind of like a concrete jungle, sort of uh, German expressionist cityscapes, that kind of thing. But, in reality, true darkness is at the edges of town. Exactly, exactly. And, and you certainly start to see that in kind of some of the later later L.A. noirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this narrative is just such kind of classic noir trappings where you have these these two... Well, and it, it is interesting that we have two instead of mm-hmm. one, but these kind of hapless Usually it's one oaf who falls exactly. into a woman's trap. Yeah, exactly. Here we have two, these, these kind of hapless protagonists who, you know, kind of think that they're in control of things. They think that they're at the center of the narrative. But actually, they're not. And the world is going to chew them up and spit them out. Yeah, and Uttar Pradesh is actually... um, Seems quite violent. Um, They meet a little uh, kid named Nandu. And you find out later that he's essentially joining like a militia out in the hills that is against the... Um, the province, no, the the city next door, town, village. It, mm-hmm. It's all these little uh, units fighting each other. And um, I think it's uh, Warsi who says, like, you know, all we've got is uh, Shia and Sunni. They, they've got <laughs> every ethnic group here is trying to kill each other all the time. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting that um, a lot more players than... Then really come up in the story, but you can you can mine a lot of danger out of these uh, right. rural backwaters. Yeah, just and a lot of the, gun culture too. The environment, the location itself becomes a central character, and ultimately becomes, in a sense, the biggest villain of the piece. Yeah, you could maybe compare it to something like Johnny Guitar, where a woman is running a mm-hmm. roadhouse out in the mm-hmm. out in the sticks, and you know trouble rolls in. Hmm. What did you think? Um, I guess a bit of a spoiler alert here. It's it's hard to talk about either of these films without kind of spoiling some stuff. So uh, we'll, we're going to do our best. But if you haven't seen either film, you know you might want to skip this part uh, and go straight past the interval. Um, but what did you think of the the conclusion here? Because this the conclusion is not very noir. No, it's um, not. Typically in film noir. Uh, the protagonist is killed or um, crippled, crippled or, or point is like arrested. Everything falls apart at the end and it's nihilistic. But here we have our, our two hapless heroes kind of coming to 
Fallon's rescue and kind of seeing like, oh, like she she was screwing us over because she has her own pain and she has her own stuff going on. And they kind of um, see they they forgive her and they come back and they kind of you know help her succeed and it does still have kind of a nihilistic ending with uh, everything blowing up but our three kind of heroes Balan included get to kind of walk off into the sunset they get to walk down the road and go on to further adventures except well there's there's a kind of a song sequence in the credits yeah. and then Vidya Balan does not show up in the sequel Dead Ishkia right so um I don't know. It's it's interesting. You were saying it's more like a like a western, and I I agree with that. Mm-hmm. They are literally walking into the sunset mm-hmm. with with this uh, this gangster guy on their tail, mm-hmm. um, who just seems to enjoy chasing them around and you know making them do his bidding. Yeah, it's not like a perfectly happy ending. You get the sense that like things are going to catch up with them eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, the more I think about it, the more I didn't like the ending. Mm-hmm. I feel like they could have capped it off in classic style. Yeah. So as Matt mentioned, Chope did direct a sequel in 2014, Dead Ishkia, which also has Madari Dixit and Huma Qureshi in it. Uh, I've seen it. You haven't. Uh, I do think it's worthwhile. I think it's it's a really kind of fun and interesting film, um, which also has kind of some interesting twists and turns, but I don't think I liked it as much as Ishkia. You don't see a lot of noir sequels. <laughs> Possibly for the reason that the main character yeah. usually dies. I, I haven't seen this one, but maybe it turns into more of a heist film or something. Like, that's an archetype that you can repeat over and over again? It's about um, Nazarene Shah and um, Arshad Warsi kind of trying to seduce Madhuri Dixit, who's playing this, like, wealthy widow. Yikes, that's, they, that's a terrible job, huh? Yeah, and they want they want to steal her fortune. That's what it's all about. They're going to present themselves as really good suitors. It's kind of a bit like The Handmaiden, actually. Mm. Um, that would actually be a very interesting comparison for reasons that I will not get into. Um, but it has a bit of a setup like that. Are there bells that jingle jangle in interesting places? Uh, no, not quite. Yeah, not that quite. seems a little bit explicit for Bollywood films. Not quite. Um, Check out The Handmaiden, though. <laughs> yes. If you can get it in your country, it's great. Yes. Uh, do you have anything else to add about Ishkia? Or about um, Balan's performance? She does a great job of walking that uh, line between damsel in distress and cunning manipulator. And I think maybe she... The story has her overplay her hand too early, because mm. um, I didn't find that I was ever in doubt of her being a femme fatale. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, in something like Chinatown, for instance, where every scene is shot essentially through Jack Nicholson's character's lens, you have to wait until the characters figure it out right. before you do, but... Pretty much from Jump Street, she's already being pretty suspicious. Mm-hmm. So uh, that kind of hurts the the mystery aspect of this story. But like, yeah, I'm not going to rewrite the film. It, it it works pretty well as it is, and yeah. yeah, it was enjoyable. I agree. I think this is like this is a, this is a gem. This is I think a film that could have um, uh, a film that could kind of bridge gaps, could have a cross crossover appeal. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. If you our November person looking for something to fill out your last two weeks. Maybe check it out. It's on... Uh, it's on... It was on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah. So you honestly have no excuse. 
Uh, well, that brings us to Interval. We are going to be playing a song from our second film, Sat Kun Moth. This is Darling. Darling, If you're an artist, you know that banking can be difficult because your income isn't traditional. ATB's new Arts and Culture branch was built for you. You can finally get your banking done in a way that works for you and the industry you work in. The Arts and Culture branch is opening in Edmonton and Calgary in the next few months. Check out atb.com slash listen. The Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, is an initiative to bring together podcasts from our home province of Alberta. Currently, there are 21 podcasts on the network, covering a variety of topics and issues. Both of these films feature strong and unique women that refuse to live their lives on anyone else's terms. One of the new podcasts that recently joined the network, Girl Tries Life, explores similar issues. Host Victoria Smith interviews inspiring women to show that there are many different ways to live an incredible life. You can find Girl Tries Life at girltrieslife.com. To find out more about the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and the member podcast, go to albertapodcastnetwork.com. Welcome back, lovers. That was Darling from Satkun Maf, which means, I don't know if you know this, Seven Murders Forgiven. Yes. I think a better title would be Seven Dead Husbands. I was kind of disappointed that that's not what it translate to, translated to, but I guess Seven Murders Forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, the title is debatable. Yeah. Uh, but the film came out in 2011 and was directed by Vishal Bardwaj. And based on a short story by Ruskin Bond, when we were researching this episode, <laughs> I actually got pretty mad when I read about that. Yeah. Because Ruskin Bond, sure, um, interesting Indian author. But the very brief uh, synopsis of how the film got made is Ruskin Bond sent his book of short stories to Vishal Bardwaj, who liked it and made a film. <laughs> Well, yeah. There's got to be more to it, right? Because this was a four-page story that got expanded into an 80-page treatment. Yeah, there was more to it. So, Bardwatch had previously adapted Bond's The Blue Umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so, they already had a relationship. So, when he got kind of this collection of short stories, Zach Kumoff was about four pages, and he thought, oh, this would make a great movie. Kind of showed it to some other directors. There isn't even as many pages as there is husbands. Yeah. He showed it to some other directors and friends of his. No one really agreed with him, but he kind of thought, no, like there is something here. So he convinced Bond to expand it. He expanded it into a novella, and Bardwaj uh, produced a script from there. And kind of he he's taken some liberties. Yeah. Um, but maybe those other directors were right because this was a huge commercial flop. It was, um, but critically, critically, it did very well. Yeah. So amazing cast in this movie. Yeah. Stars. Priyanka Chopra, Vivan Shah, who I think we saw first in Happy New Year. And he is the son of Nazaruddin Shah and Ratnapathak. Pretty good parents if you can get them. Yeah, he's. I think he's great, but someone needs to upload a better photo of him to his Wikipedia profile page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, go check it out. It's pretty bad. He <laughs> yeah. should also buy a suit that fits. Um, he didn't seem to have any problems with his suits in, uh, in Happy New Year. Like, that's 
swimsuit might honestly fit, and it might just be the angle. Or was there a wind machine on the red carpet that <laughs> I day? I don't know, but he's like, he's a cute guy. And, and he's skinny, too, but he's wearing this suit that he's just swimming <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible, can someone yeah. put a different picture of him on Wikipedia? It sucks. Anyway, um, so those are the two main characters. <laughs> yeah. But we've also got Konkana Sen Sharma, Neil Natimikesh, John Abraham, Irfan Khan, and Naziruddin Shah making his second appearance in this episode. Yeah. Uh, the film won two Filmfare Awards, including the Critics Award for Best Actress, well, uh, well met, I think. Yeah. And was nominated for two others. So this movie definitely reminded me of not so much noir, but kind of like an Ealing Studios, like murder comedy. Okay. It reminded me a little bit of something Hitchcock might have done or possibly uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets. It, yeah, I can see that. For me, it reminded me a lot of kind of the kind of the pre-neo-noir stuff that you get from the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. So specifically, this to me like had... Truffaut kind Exactly. Of. There's yeah. some striking similarities to Truffaut's Mississippi Mermaid and The Bride Wore Black, yeah. which are both Cornell Woolrich adaptations. Cornell Woolrich also wrote Rear Window. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I really saw kind of this, like, deadly woman working her way through husband Society, yeah. Yeah, like, it, we really had, like, a Mississippi Mermaid and, and Bride Wore Black feeling to me. Yeah, and where... And even she- to a lesser extent, uh, Jules Saint Jean. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's a stretch, but whatever. Well, um, I mean, Danes, they're going to do you in. I guess, You yeah. might love them. You might feel sorry for them, but they're going to do you in. Oh, I'm well aware <laughs> that Danes will do me in. Yeah. Um, anyway, so where Ishkia had a rural, kind of a Western feel to it, you get these two guys rolling into town and troubles afoot. Yeah. I found that Sakumov... Also a little bit rural, I would say. Yeah. Definitely the mansion she lives in is rural. Yeah. But I And thought, that stuff reminded me a lot of all the plantation stuff in Mississippi and Romain. Yeah. This one reminded me more of like a gothic. Yes. There's a lot of um, perhaps Ramsey Brothers-esque um, stuffed animals all over the walls. Taxidermy, okay, taxidermy yeah. animals. Her house looks like a, like a, um, a mortuary, which mm-hmm. given what the film is about, that makes sense. And... She does kind of associate herself with a ramshackle band of weirdos that live in her house. <laughs> yes. So, pre- well, they're her servants. Yeah, but you know they 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 become weirder as the movie goes on. Yeah. So the original title of the short story was Susanna's Seven Husbands, and the movie starts around nowadays, like contemporary, yeah. and uh, Vivan Shaw is a uh, coroner's assistant or something like that having to do with the cops. Forensic scientist. Forensic scientist. Yeah. yeah, CSI type guy who gets sent a box of the personal effects of Susanna who, in kind of a clear breach of uh, like <laughs> privacy, I would say, maybe gets someone else on this case, he, was, he grew up on her estate. Mm-hmm. He was uh, kind of a foundling who ended up there and she took a liking to him. Yeah. And he's been madly in love with her his entire <laughs> life. So his objectivity on this case is not there. No. His wife is Konkana Sen Sharma. They have a kid as well. This is important. Um, that um, 
once once uh, once he finds out she dies, he pulls out his scrapbook and starts telling Konkanis and Sharma about the seven husbands and his life with Susanna. Mm-hmm. So, husbands in order. Let's see if I can remember this off the top of my head. Okay. Husband number one. Not going to remember the names of the characters, but husband number one is Neil Nitin Mukesh. Mm-hmm. He is a um, army man who lost a foot during uh, Operation Blue Star, mm-hmm. right? Um, so this would be about the 80s is when she first gets married. I don't think she really had a choice on this one. No. Um, her father died, leaving her the estate, and either it was figured out before or soon thereafter that she should get married. And um, he's a bit of a tyrant. He is jealous of her with other men. Uh, she doesn't. Want, he doesn't want her to dance with other men at a regimental mm-hmm. ball, that kind of thing. And he's specifically jealous of her... Um, her diminutive uh, pal Gunga, who is a uh, jockey, there's mm-hmm. there's horses on this estate, and at one point he gets in a fight with Gunga where they both have bull whips uh, stripped to the waist and then just kind of fight each other. So a very short man versus a man with one leg. Didn't see this coming whatsoever. <laughs> but anyway, he gets offed. Offed, you ask? Well... Susanna's husbands have a terrible tendency <laughs> to end up seven feet under. Exactly. Six feet under. But seven feet under. <laughs> Husband number two is John Abraham, who Pranka Chopra notices in the choir at Nilmitin <laughs> Mukesh's funeral. <laughs> and he's got a lovely singing voice. Um, they get married. And he decides on a whim to change his name to Jimmy. She changes her name to Susie. This is never brought up again. And he embarks... She has a different name kind of with each husband. But. Yeah. Um, and a different personality, too. Yeah. She changes almost entirely for each man. Yeah. And he embarks on a musical career where, in my favorite part of the film, <laughs> he's kind of like an Axl Rose type. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, there's some uh, wrongdoings with... Uh, uh, permissions for song usage. Mm. And wouldn't you know it, oops, Abraham sent to the sent to the big uh, stage in the sky. Yeah. He overdoses on heroin. Yes. Accidentally. <laughs> no one intentionally overdoses. <laughs> yes. Um, third husband, probably the worst guy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Irfan Khan, who is a hotshot uh, Muslim cleric. Mm-hmm. And um, Priyanka is so impressed by him that she changes her religion and name, marries him. Uh, he's like a soft-hearted poet type, but in bed, though, he is a extremely violent person. Yeah. And uh, this wears on her. So that doesn't he's go abusive, for long. Yeah. He's, an, he's an abusive a shithead. Yeah. Um, fourth husband, probably the part of the movie that drags the most, <laughs> yeah. I would say, is a Russian scientist who is there for some India-Russian, you know, working together project. He may be a spy, though. Yeah. It turns out he's probably a spy. Mm -hmm. I should say spoiler warning for this. We're definitely going to talk about all the husbands. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he's he's got some other, um, he's got some other plans for his Anna. He calls her Anna after Anna Karina. Mm Mm-hmm. Anna Karenina, not Anna Karina. 
Um, and <laughs> you want to talk about Truffaut and Godard and stuff. There you go, Anna Karina. I, I can never get the Annas. Anna Karenina and Anna Karina. Oh, God. It just... Yeah. It never rolls off my... I always say the wrong one. Yeah. But anyway, doesn't go too great for him. Fifth guy is a local cop mm-hmm. who has been investigating all these dead husbands. Well, he's not local. He's out of town. Right, yeah. He gets called in. Yeah. Yeah, because she's out in the sticks, basically. Yeah. And on this big plantation. And, yeah, he kind of blackmails her into sleeping with him, at least. So, he's pretty gross. And also, kind of uses his political connections and some stuff having to do with the Russian guy to try and get ahead himself. Mm -hmm. This relationship is not long for... uh, Nope. Further where you can't blackmail your wife into like you can't blackmail a woman into marrying you, she's gonna resent you, yeah. Um, and by this point, something that we haven't talked about is that uh, Prangachoe's character is aging quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, so it starts around 85, 86, and by the time she's on her sixth husband, I'd say it's probably the late 2000s or so, yeah. So she's probably in her 50s or 60s. Um, the earliest we could tell with her is that she there's a picture of her as a little kid in 1964. Mm-hmm. So she's definitely in her 50s or 60s by the time the modern day is rolling around. Yeah. And um, after uh, Vivan Shaw, her her sugar, she calls him, after a little, little game they played back in the day, he's essentially broken ties with her because they have a very weird relationship <laughs> and it's probably better for everyone if he takes off. Mm-hmm. Um but she tries to kill herself, and wouldn't you know it, Nazidi Radin Shah is a doctor passing through town, and he has a combination of homeopathy, regular medicine, and mushrooms, <laughs> and brings her back to life. He seems okay, but wouldn't you know it, something else happens. And I won't ruin the identity of the seventh husband. No, no, you can't ruin it. Never. So but his, uh, his friendly appearance in the film <laughs> has to be... One of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Um, very rarely does this uh, this person show up in uh, Hindi films, and it's pretty great. Yeah, they really resurrected him for this. Yeah, his it's quite quite impressive. His his career has kind of given up the ghost. I would yeah. say. I will say that uh, I was very satisfied with the identity of the seventh husband. I thought that mm-hmm. was a, like that's exactly where you needed to take this. Yeah, this story. is a, this is a rare one where you actually called the. Uh, the ending. I was like, damn. Yeah. Well, and I should have called it sooner because I was like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen here. Um, and then kind of when it was happening, I was like, oh, yeah, I was right. But I wish I'd vocalized it sooner. You're really good at doing that. And I'm afraid of getting it wrong. So I always kind of wait. And then I'm like, I was right. And you're like, but you didn't say anything. And I was yeah. like, but I was thinking it. Something <laughs> to know about me. I'm not afraid of being wrong. As you may have <laughs> tell, you might have been able to tell yeah. from the last 53 episodes of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, this movie was great. This was great. This was a lot of fun. As soon as I heard the concept of this, I thought, like, oh, man, like, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like female Bluebeard, right? Yeah. Um, Bluebeard is a uh, fairy tale written by Charles Perrault um, about this man who kills his his wives. Um and, and she becomes a blue hair by the end of it. So. Yeah, she does. Um, it's it's probably one of the darkest fairy tales you will ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been many film adaptations of it. Barjana. And a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Yeah. 
Bardra himself was inspired by the 20s version uh, when he was working on this. And there's even kind of a shout out to Bluebeard at one point in the shot you see a copy of the book. Vivan Shah gives her a very portentous (laughs) (laughs) present. He's really playing with fire, honestly. He could have easily been offed many times by his sort of crazy... uh, Yeah. um, uh, His sahib, he calls her. Yeah. What I love about this film is how it's about this woman's deep desire to be loved and her inability to kind of to find that love and to receive that. And so what you see is just kind of um, the gauntlet of how women are callously treated by men. And To be fair, she is finding some shitty men. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She is, but this is all stuff that 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 women, yeah. um, unfortunately, are forced to put up with. I don't know about Russian partners. spies. <laughs> I okay. That, but- that's not your classic of like you know gaslighting type guy or you know some of these these other things that men do in this movie. But the Russian spy, like the issue is not that he's a Russian spy. The issue is that he's already married. Yeah, yeah. The issue there is infidelity. So so essentially. Every husband abuses her in some way. And so it shows kind of the things that many women deal with at the hands of men. And so it gives her her femme fatale a motive. It, it, it justifies her actions. She is always shown as a sympathetic character. She's always shown as kind of a woman who lost her father and never learned how to... never. Never found love that she needed, that she so desperately craved. I would and say maybe the last half an hour, she's not completely in the right. I don't and know. also all of her dealings with uh, with sugar, because <sighs> she, she is fucking up his life, and she knows it. I don't know. I think I think she's deeply sympathetic. This this is the kind of role and portrayal I would have wanted from Tabu playing Mrs. Havisham. In, or Miss Havisham. Yes. And I was Fitur. also thinking that because Fatour has, well, the original story has these sort of complex yeah. characters, but it was done so flatly. Yeah. Whereas this was a really good way of doing that. And it had a weird, you know, old mansion. This is a much mm-hmm. better version of that sort of story. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously not great expectations, but you can see um, Priyanka Chopra kind of. Also, it is kind of great expectations because she takes <laughs> this foundling into her house. That's true. That's yeah. true. But but Susanna would make a great Miss Havisham. It's it's great <laughs> expectations if um, he just fell in love with Miss Havisham instead. Yeah, yeah, that's and true. she was murdering all these suitors. Yeah, and it's just it's so I mean it's such a it's such a fun and and just kind of engaging premise. You know mm-hmm. this this serial murderess. This you know this this woman who. The Black um, Widow. Yeah, this Black Widow, exactly. This, you know, her husbands keep disappointing her, but it's not that they're disappointing her; they're outright abusing her. Okay, what do you think of this? Though? Or lying to her or betraying her, and so she she takes it into her own hands. She offs them. What do you think? She's of this, in though? control. Okay, except for she's never in control because she this desperate need to be loved is the thing that will always be her undoing. Yeah, exactly. And even before Neil Natimukesh is on the scene. She's already got a well full of snakes <laughs> where they live, and she feeds them milk every day. So, like, she's already flirting with danger 
from Jump Street. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she's got a murder well <laughs> day one. Yeah, and you know that murder well's going to show up at some point. It's Chekhov's murder well. <laughs> you don't have that in the first scene and not use it. But, like, I don't know. I think there's a... I don't think that she's just a victim, especially near the end. She's- no, I'm not saying she's just a victim, but I am saying that this is a very complex portrayal of your typical um, Black Widow character. I think that if at least by husband four, she's enjoying it. Okay. Like, she's going into this thinking, you know, maybe this is the love of my life, and if not, I'll just murder him. It's worked fine before. <laughs> Like, I don't think it's quite as black and white as you're saying. I don't know. I mean, That's why it's an interesting portrayal, is yeah. that there's layers to it. And think about Husband 3. Like, I'm, I think... Husband 3... Husband I, 3 is the worst husband. I think Husband 3 is the one that kind of turns her in, like... Yeah. That's the one where she devotes herself purely to it. And how do you not... How do you not have empathy for her? Which, I do have empathy okay. for her, obviously. <laughs> but I'm just saying that I think the character... Has a little bit more darkness in her than you're giving her credit for. No, I I totally agree with you that she that yeah to a certain extent she does enjoy this and she she is a very dark character and I think again that's what I that's what I like about her that dichotomy mm-hmm. that she can both be this um, naive innocent victim this little girl desperate to be loved and this serial killer mm-hmm. you know and I I like that. That these two things are not at odds with one another, but instead form this very complex character who is brilliantly portrayed by Priyanka Chopra. She's excellent. Yeah. Um, I know we're like two people ever to talk about how good she was in What's Your Rashi, <laughs> but she hits What's Your Rashi level different characterizations in this. Because yeah. she had to do a ton in that movie, which is kind of a nothing movie. This is a much better film. Yeah. And yet... She has to portray at least, like, 30 years of a person's life. And she does a really good job. And I think the makeup is also quite good. Yeah. I'm thinking more it's... the same makeup artist as um, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah. I think it's more the light... I think it's more the lighting that kind of lets her down in some scenes. Yeah. But, like, even physically, uh, I think she ages quite a bit. And And it's, it's actually really well done. And the way that she changes her personality and her appearance and just kind of her manner, you know, kind of according to the man that she's with, I think is very realistic. I think Mm -hmm. it's a very well observed kind of phenomenon that a lot of women find themselves in. I think, I think you do, you, you do want to please your partner and and men and women. I think, I think this, this happens um, to everyone. Like you do want to please your partner and you kind of, you take up the things that they like. And when you're desperate for that attention, it's really easy to lose yourself in someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I like how Susanna is always kind of a bit of a blank slate, you know, just ready to be molded by the next guy who comes along. She's a love witch. (laughs) Yes, she is a love witch. Uh, that was a movie that came out last year. If you like this movie, I would definitely seek it out because it's even more stylized and yeah. also um, about um, what San Francisco. I think it's it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a witch in modern day who's entrapping men to their doom. Yeah, but also shares a connection with kind of the same era of French film that I I really think that this film does. Um, the Bride Wore Black, a Francois Truffaut film directed by a Cornell Wilwright story 
is kind of the template for what would eventually become uh, Kill Bill, where um, a woman, a bride, tracks down and kind of murders all the men that are responsible for this great trauma in her life. Or Lady Snowblood. She does that too. Yeah. So, yeah, I like I like vengeful women, Matt. Uh, what does that say to me, <laughs> your romantic partner? <laughs> how, how does this film play as a noir to you? And what do you think of its kind of portrayal of the femme fatale, kind of specifically in conjunction with that archetype? As a neo-noir, I think it's more in conversation with the later ones in the cycle where you have, like, mutes and, you know, giants and kind of more of a, a, like, like a freak show atmosphere Mm -hmm. with her entourage. And it's got the gothic touches. Mm -hmm. Visually, this one's a lot more um, striking. It uses a lot more of lighting techniques. Mm -hmm. Uh... A lot of uh, focusing on the eyes while she's in bed or something, um, and using this uh, gothic mansion. I don't know if it's gothic, like architecturally, mm-hmm. but this mansion is used to great gothic effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the songs are a lot more interesting in this one mm-hmm. because they are cued to whoever she's in love with at mm. the time. So Darling, which you heard, is like a sort of Russian dance sequence. There's one with Irfan uh, Khan, which mm. is kind of like a devotional song. And yeah, I think filmically this one's a lot more interesting. Something we didn't mention about Ishkir, by the way, is that uh, Nezreddin Shah's character, as well as Vidya Balan, are also uh, film music fans. Mm. So they often discuss a song that they're hearing and who wrote it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, I think the filmy touches are more um, in the creation of the film rather than the characters. Right. You don't really hear any of the characters in Sakumov talking about other movies. The movie itself is reflecting it. Mm-hmm. It's intertextual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I liked Vivan Shah, too. He's the narrator. And um, while Konkana San Sharma doesn't have a lot to do, it's just always nice to see in her movie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, yeah, Vivan Shah's an interesting character in his own right. He's completely been um, under this woman's thumb for his whole life and is obsessed with her, basically. I'd like to see him in more stuff. Like, he made a strong impact on me in Happy New Year. Yeah, he's fun in Happy New Year. I really like him in this. Uh, Yeah, it just... he, He seems like... Yeah, underappreciated, maybe. Or yeah, he seems maybe like... Maybe he's still waiting for the right role. He but. seems like he's got a Rajkumar Rao-ish, like, normal yeah. guy thing that he can do. Yeah, I like him a lot. And, you yeah. know, and he's kind of like... He's just... He's so tiny compared to, I think, a lot of other kind of um, actors in his generation. And that kind of, I think, really makes him stand out. Well, he seems like a normal person. Yeah. He doesn't seem like a big beefcake guy. Yeah. Um, what about this film's kind of use of the femme fatale archetype? Well, this is about as fatale as femmes get. <laughs> um, it's interesting in that you are, as you said, you are never against her. No. You are always completely on her side. And that's what I find striking about this film is it's the, the femme fatale is our lead. And I would say in most original noirs, there would be some, apart from maybe Vivian Shah's obsession with her, 
or something like Body, for instance, there would be some doubt as to the veracity of her story. Mm. Whereas this, I don't think it ever calls into question what she's thinking. There's a little bit at the end where she seems completely unrepentant or something. You could yeah. you could look at the events again with that lens, but like this one's very straightforward in that respect. Yeah, the narration is very noir, but there's no sense of kind of it being unreliable in any mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Which would have been interesting, but also that's not the movie they were making. No. So um in that respect, it's more of a, a neo-noir mm-hmm. and playing with film styles rather than narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a lot of fun. Well worth it. Yeah, it was great. Out. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. Ishka's, Ishka's decent. Um, I really liked both of these films and, you know, I, I wasn't disappointed. I, I wanted I wanted some juicy some juicy roles for women and I, I feel like them. I've gotten them. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm I'm very satisfied. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Like a good November. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We will be back in two weeks. Um, <laughs> with another mystery episode. With another mystery episode. Will this copy of It Effect show up? Will it be a legal copy? Who knows? Yeah, we could be up for another November episode uh, if that comes together. I'm very annoyed. I paid for the expedited shipping. And so I thought it would be here, like, well before we were going to record this episode. And it's still not here. And I just... But these are adventures in, you know, buying Bollywood films off of Amazon. You want to be <laughs> legit. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. Yeah. I, I'd i really like to see it. So if we're able to... We're going to be doing an episode on Indifact. If not, uh, look at our Facebook and Twitter page where we will announce what our next episode is going to be on. Uh, so... We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, Matt, how can people keep up with the show? Well, you can check us out at bollywoodisforlovers.tumblr.com. You can find us on Twitter at BollywoodPod. I'm also there at Matt underscore B-O-W-E-S. You can find me on Twitter at Erin E. Fraser, E-R-N-E-F-R-A-S-E-R. Check us out on Facebook. Just look up Bollywood is for Lovers. The show is also being played on G Radio, mm-hmm. so if you... Want to check out some other Edmonton shows? You can find us alongside those. Uh, it's available at all your podcaster type spots, but especially iTunes is a good one. Mm-hmm. You can leave us a nice review there talking about how much you appreciate our approach to uh, women in Bollywood, maybe. That's a good idea. You can also subscribe to my other show that I do weekly with Paul Matwichek called Trash Art and the Movies. We just did an episode on a punks in film, which mm-hmm. uh, I think is a lot of fun. Uh, and you can also listen to all of our episodes on Audio Boom, mm-hmm. uh, our main home on the web. All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>